In this episode, I had the privilege to sit down with Van Espabodi to learn more about his exciting adventures in the public-private sector and his recent exciting, exhilarating work around the globe with Starburst Ventures, the first aerospace accelerator. I had a blast talking to Van, and I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. I'm grateful for Van's time and so excited to dive in. And without further ado, let's get after it. Thanks so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it, Van. Um, So the first thing I I was really curious about is you sort of abruptly transitioned from the more public sector world into the space startup-y world. I was watching a talk that you gave at a drone conference where you kind of touched on this a little bit. I'd love if you could dive a little bit deeper just into how you made that transition and, and the work that you do and then how you spend your time, the thought process that went into into that transition. And maybe you can start off by touching on what you did before. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Max. And thanks for letting me uh, participate in this. I, I often love kind of supporting ideas like this. So keep me in the loop how it goes. Um, I do have a public policy background and uh, growing up as a kid, I was surrounded by a lot of fast money culture um, in, in Orange County, California. So I wanted to run as far away from that as possible and think I could do more in the government space and the public side. side. Um, I had my first internship on the Hill, uh, where I was lucky enough to be working for, um, um, leadership on the Hill where a lot of high profile visitors would often stop in and, and I got, I was able to show that I'm pretty good at, at staffing uh, high profile meetings. And that kind of was the springboard, I guess, into, um, doing a lot of analysis and shaping strategy for big public policy projects. Um, it was a brief stint for under a year before the, uh, defense industry pulled me and invited me over to, um, uh, interview for a job at, at Raytheon where, um, uh, mutual contacts basically gave me an opportunity to uh, support senior leadership and the executive office of corporate to help with a lot of our international strategy. Um, I I think being 23 and having an opportunity to travel business class around the world to places like Pakistan and, and looking at major weapons deals was um, a game changer. And and uh, an opportunity not to be ignored. And so um, getting on that was, uh, I think I, having worked for the public sector and realizing a lot of the uh, sausage making and the complexity and getting things done to have an impact um, was really eye-opening. So I thought maybe working for a multinational uh, defense conglomerate could could have stronger impact um, only to realize it had its own complexities uh, over the years. And I, I think I reached my own moral limits at a certain point where the British equivalent to the FAA was part privatized. So I thought, hey, why don't I work for the best of both worlds, a public-private partnership? And um, the I realized it was the worst of both worlds. I spent a good eight years um, overseas in the UK uh, helping bring a lot of those technology efficiencies back into the FAA NAS, the airspace. And um, eventually all my British colleagues introduced me to, or 
the innovation arm and shaping our kind of venturing strategy. And the more I got involved in that and tap back into my roots in California, it was, uh, it was kind of a snowball effect where I eventually met my business partner on the outside who then, uh, asked me to join forces, quit my job and help him expand this concept of a startup accelerator dedicated to the field of aerospace, um, which is everything in, in aviation, uh, space and defense. And, and yeah, it's been a, I never ever imagined I would pursue something entrepreneurial. Um, I think having had that public policy or public sector experience has taught me a lot as well as um, being in a very high profile corporate environment, working government contracts, either on the defense side or on the commercial side. And um, I am really grateful for that experience. And I think if anything, I've concluded, I am nowhere near as talented as the many entrepreneurs like yourself that are out there. And if I have any experience in helping you and others like you navigate and how to shake things up and make that status quo uncomfortable, then I've done my job as best as I can. So uh, today, all, all I can say is um, anything I can do to point you in the right direction and let you excel as best you can is, is my mission in life now. I really appreciate that, Van. Your words are very kind. And I, I also just wanted to say that you have one of the like cleanest parabolas of or cleanest pendulums of swinging from totally public sector put back to totally private sector out of anyone who I've ever met. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's pretty unconventional. Yeah. It's really cool. Cool. So so now you're 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 full fledged into Starburst, which I find to be also a extremely fascinating business model. We talked about this a little bit at the Matthew uh, Fellowship Summit. Um, could you maybe just go back and give a little bit of an overview of of how you view what you do? Yeah. I mean, along the same lines of what we were just talking about, you have to think about who's capable of, of, of change, who's capable of having and making an impact and, and true change for me is, is, is brought by the power of the entrepreneur, that person who understands where the problem sets are, and, and really wants to religiously has that sort of self-awareness enough to just passionately do whatever it takes to go and solve those problems. Um, the purpose of Starburst Accelerator is to empower those entrepreneurs in a very heavily regulated safety critical regime uh, and infrastructure in an industry that's um, uh, almost an oligopoly of key suppliers uh, that are slowly waking up to the fact that their barriers to market entry are lowered. So Starburst is uh, started as an idea to help everyone be good at what everyone is good at. So stop letting the corporates pretend to be entrepreneurs and stop letting the entrepreneurs pretend to be big corporates, investors in government, vice versa. Uh, so we started out by helping the corporates scout and legitimize the increasing rate of small businesses that were looking for venture capital funding, uh, capitalizing on a lot of the market trends where the economics of lower Earth orbit, Leo, were, were opening up. And, and I think a lot of uh, institutional money and government money and private money has really started to flood in. And the more we could curate that and make it easier for those 
entities to come together and play together, uh, the more collaborative it would be. I'm not a big believer of disrupting an industry like space. Uh, I think it's about letting those come together and think more creatively and conventionally in how to approach those problem sets together. So that's the nature of Starburst is, is um, to introduce uh, the innovators with established industry and to then invest in those companies and help uh, the startups grow uh, as well as help mature the big, the old boys club, the sort of the, the heritage industrial companies to be a little bit more uh, maneuverable and faster at working and opening up the doors to partnering with companies like that. So I'm curious. Before you guys really came onto the scene, did a lot of these a lot of these big heritage aerospace companies did they have the extensive venture arms that they do now? Yeah, venture is nothing new to aerospace, and innovation is actually uh, nothing new. I would many can it's obvious we can argue that aerospace is one of the most innovative industries that are out there, and those uh, legacy players um, have been in this space for a reason. Um, most of the retiring executives of today's aerospace companies like Northrop Grumman, West Bush, who recently announced his retirement, uh, uh, used to run TRW Ventures about 20 years ago. So there is nothing new. Um, there, a significant consolidation of industry happened. And yes, market forces are sort of uh, uh, experiencing similar attributes to what happened 20 years ago, but in a different sense, definitely. Uh, so I would argue it's, it's nothing new, but there is a huge opportunity for industry to uh, establish venture arms or be a little bit more open-minded in how they uh, partner with such early stage companies. I'm not sure a venture arm makes sense at such an early stage. I think small companies and entrepreneurs know having such strategic value at such an early stage may not be as advantageous as it may seem, and it may actually serve the purpose of the corporate more than it does the startup. So there's a lot more complexity to that dynamic. And the more we can uh, absolve that in some kind of a voice of greater industry as a signal, like in QTEL, uh, like the initiatives that we're seeing through MD5, um, like what we're trying to do, um, then the better off uh, that, that innovation community will continue to be. Super cool. So one more question on Starburst. I am fascinated with how you even go about getting a project like this off the ground. At Starburst, you guys cover venture funding, accelerator, an accelerator program. You do an open innovation program where you try to match uh, corporations with startups. And then you also do strategy consulting for these corporations. And it just seems like you have such an extensive ecosystem. I'm, I'm fascinated with how you went about starting that and maybe what some of the, the most impactful steps that you took at first to set you up for success now were as you were getting this program off the ground? I mean, part of it is is playfully no different than any growth hacking model of just creating major FOMO. So <laughs> uh, really that's been the entire strategy is, is not necessarily to have so many moving parts, um, but to know how to be a lot more intelligent in how those moving parts come together and agreeing a very robust process uh, as to how it all works and that there is a, a sort of a, a larger... Uh, value chain that that kind of instigates it. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in just a binary conversation. I think, I think um, all these pieces have to come together to make it work. So yes, uh, it sounds uh, nebulous, 
but it really isn't. Um, it just, the it, lot their timing has a lot to do with it. So I would argue we just happened to be at the right place at the right time. We leveraged our relationships, uh, fear of the competitive marketplace as the right way to do it. And then there are many other components to look at geog geography. So after Airbus Ventures announced its venture arm, um, invested in OneWeb, uh, after, after OneWeb contracted with Airbus, um, after Triptalis did a lot more activities with Explore in the US. So as the Europeans uh, bubbled up, it was more than natural for the American uh, in kind of companies to do the same and back and forth, pendulum goes around and it's the same, same old, same old. So we really just were very, uh, having been on the inside of those, of those conversations in those companies, you know how they're thinking and you know how to, how to, trigger their competitive nature enough to say, I don't want to miss out on this and I want to, I want to be involved. Very cool. And and was this kind of a brainchild plan from the start or did it slowly evolve from one seed? So did the accelerator come first? And then as you were planning the accelerator, you, you recognize these other opportunities as you were moving along. That's always been the vision. Uh, obviously there's been, you can never predict how things go and some aspects of it are going slower than I would have liked. Some aspects of it are going faster than I imagined. Uh, and in the end, finding the right people to help us uh, uh, kind of share, expand on this vision is always the hardest part. So uh, I don't want to be the only one that has that, that pendulum or that revolving door experience between public and private. I think it's, I like finding other people like yourselves that appreciate and respect why Heritage operates the way that it does, as well as gets excited about why SpaceX and other new companies operate the way that they do. So it's about bringing that kind of dichotomy into our family to continue to nurture that relationship in the industry. Specifically on the consulting, is it, do you guys have a team of consultants who you work with or is it really the leadership team oh, yeah. at Starburst? Oh yeah, no, trust me, I'm not uh, capable <laughs> of doing all that stuff. I, I, we, as the, as you follow the roadmap and as our brand grew within the industry, we met a lot of really good people that were that are uh, in very respectable positions who um, started out offering to help part time and then have since come in full time as the economics started to make more sense. So, uh, talent from McKinsey, uh, Oliver Wyman, Roland Berger, these are reputable uh, management consulting firms that compete to the likes of what are often known as BCG, Accenture, um, uh, Bain, and. Uh, of that caliber uh, of people have, are now in the Starburst family that are delivering very similar strategic consulting. Um, but on top of that, add a layer of the startup perspective, um, which is really what we're trying to differentiate ourselves as. That is fascinating. Now, changing topics a little bit, I would love to hear a little bit about what you were, say, passionate about when you were when you were growing up and you were going through education and whatnot. And before you got into the rest of your career, what, what, what got you excited or maybe what gets you excited now outside of Starburst and space? As the social media storm in recent years just kind of took over our lives, you reconnected with all these kids from your youth. And, and it was funny, like I've, I've become close friends again with one of the kids I knew in elementary school. And when you have conversations over beers with them and you're, they're like, what are you doing now? And it's really funny to hear some of them go, oh, that doesn't surprise me. You always talked about this and that. So I guess you could say from when I was really young and after my, I would say childhood, like five, six years old, seven years old, parents took me to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum that definitely had a, an impact on my life. And 
and I, I, I dreamt of being an astronaut or a senator, which was the weirdest uh, balance of things to do. And so, yeah, it was really, really funky. Um, and, and everyone looked at me like I'm a weirdo. And, uh, and I spent my entire career um, butting heads with MBA types or, or really deep-minded um, analysts at like Rand Corporation, um, like aggressive think tanks. And I think... Uh, I could never find my my footing and that constantly bouncing around and trying to uh, stand out in a different way was was difficult for most of my career. And so meeting Francois and finding we had so much in common and finding that the, in our industry was going through this uh, another renaissance um, and this incredible opportunity was there that I just thought, oh, my God, like. I was meant to do this and I, and, and I honestly have embraced this almost uh, religiously and I'm really excited about everything that's happened. That's awesome. And when you were a kid, were you launching rockets? Were there any other exhibits of your space cadetness? Um, it's weird, right? I, I, I have such a passion for flight and, and all these things, but I was, I guess auto mechanics was a big thing. I loved like taking engines apart. I was obsessed with Legos. Um, I, I content, you know, I was big into like the whole fast and the furious scene. Like I, I tuned a lot of aftermarket parts. I think my, my car was one of the extras in the first film and they paid us like a grand each. It was ridiculous, but, um, that was like the culture I kind of, uh, in high school, teenage years, I, I fell into and, and I don't know why the public policy side or the other thing to mention is my parents are creative types. My father's an architect. My mother's a fashion designer. My sister went into fashion. So I, I never, I became the black sheep of the family. And I, as much as I, I could never do that, I, I really embraced the creative side and trying to um, be more provocative in thought to the more engineering uh, branded uh, community. And so, so I really have embraced the challenger mindset throughout my career to make people think differently about the sort of the, the design and the experience and the architecture of innovation in, in the space industry now. That's fascinating. What, what type of car did you have that you featured in Fast and Furious? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It was a 95 Acura GSR, uh, Integra GSR. Yeah. Oh my God. Had everything, board and polished heads, um, head, headers, exhaust, mandrel vent piping. That was fun. I was really big into naturally aspirated engines. That's cool. What, what color is it? I feel like it was was some combination of red and black. Yeah, typical black, clear, uh, blue strobe lights. It's stupid. Um, like, just dumb uh, thing. I can't believe I did that stuff. I, I, I don't know what it was. I was an adrenaline junkie in my, in my teen and, and my teen years. And, uh, and everything changed when I got the job offer to work on the Hill. And next thing you know, you're staffing like high profile, like heads of state, like the Colombian president's visiting or, and that adrenaline, um, rush or that, that, that wanting to do crazy things just weirdly pivoted into a career where you're so young and you're traveling, you're negotiating like aircraft deals in foreign countries. And it was just the weirdest thing where, and it was the strangest and saddest at the same time transition away from all that, uh, uh, tuning culture to, to kind of, a uh, international trade in the defense sector. That's so fun. That's really fun. And did you, uh, did you experience like that creative adrenaline junkie 
mash up in any other in any more like tactical or practical ways in your day-to-day job while you're working on the hill definitely not much yo that was a funny one i mean i was not i didn't in some ways i didn't belong there i'm surrounded by like ivy league brats from dartmouth and a few other places and 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 i think uh i loved i really like i said i i think i wrote a blog about it sydney weinberg the ceo of goldman sachs um really embraces the outsider insider mindset. And so coming in as an outsider and not being cut from the same cloth gave me an opportunity to really immerse myself and be accepted for having non-traditional views. And so I think uh, it's really something else to consider as, as a feature of how you brand yourself professionally as you, as you grow. Yeah. I love that. Um, so then my next question was for you in the next stage of your life, when you were in that public private mashup did you start to experience that adrenaline and creativity rush back into the work that you were doing or did you really only experience that once you went fully back into the starburst and entrepreneurial world uh not really i think they thought of themselves as a startup in government and it was a really successful uh, economic model for privatizing government infrastructure. But I think that rush was more about reestablishing myself overseas and building a whole new network of friends. You know, people move all across the States, but to move to London was like a dream of mine. Um, I also finished my, I did a study abroad in my undergrad at Cambridge and, and I really uh, became an Anglophile. Um, so I really had a dry sense of humor and British TV was like, favorite thing of mine growing up. So I, I really embraced becoming British. It was weird. So no, I think it was more about the, the personal effect of, of no, of detaching myself from my American roots and, and looking back at American uh, from the outside and, and being viewed as a token American to the Brits, which was also really funny because I don't think of myself like that at all. And then now that you're, now that you're fully immersed in the entrepreneurial world, do you, do you have that rush, that adrenaline rush and that creativity in your day-to-day work? I, I imagine you do, but I would love to just... Uh, more than I could ever imagine. And not even to a point where it's like, this is exciting. It's like, I, I don't want to do anything else. I, 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 this feels purposeful. This feels... Um, I, I have no issues waking up in the middle and I'm writing notes and everything you do is for this cause. And so it's, it's not just adrenaline in having that back again, but it's having that ingrained in your every second of every waking moment of your life. Do you have like a specific story that you'd be willing to share about, about when you felt that on an ultra extent. So when that, when that feeling was like a 10 X multiple multiple of what it is on a nominal day, yeah, your first page, your first check from a customer. Um, it's silly, but looking at like 50 K from a, a space company to, to do this kind of thing was, was a, uh, holy shit. They believe us and they, they, they believe in what we're trying to do. And it was really exciting. And so high-fiving your, your business partner and also putting that trust into, into somebody else. To, it's like being married to someone. So finding the right uh, business partner to share this journey with is critical and having that complimentary, um, um, so you t- till from the last three and a half years till today, till 
this morning, uh, we just closed another major deal worth millions. And it's and the French Ministry of Defense just awarded us a major contract to be the innovation lab for the government. I mean, incredible stuff happening. And it all started from from that day we uh, looked at our first check that, that arrived in the car and we like took photos of it in the in the car and stuff like laughing and high fiving going, oh, man, this is for real. And till this very day, you have the same exact emotion. Uh, nothing's changed. That's amazing. And congratulations. That's great to hear. So what does that mean, Innovation Lab for the government? Uh, in the U.S., um, we think of it as AFWorks, uh, the Air Force's kind of innovation arm, or uh, the DOD set up DIUX, which is now known as DIU, the Defense Innovation Unit. Uh, government acknowledges it's falling behind, and it doesn't want to miss out on working with incredible innovators and entrepreneurs and product developers uh, rapidly. And so, like you said, a uh, sort of a pendulum back and forth where, and I think the French and the U.S. are the two leading, and the Germans and the Japanese are like some of the leading entities when it comes to the space economy and and the engineering know-how. And so, as well as the Russians and Chinese, obviously, I don't want to ignore them, but I think we are very sensitive to um, the risks involved in aligning yourself commercially um, to some extent outside of the U.S. government DOD. And so the French contract that we were just awarded is it's basically us being the equivalent of DIU slash AppWorks. So we will be, they are outsourcing that to us to help facilitate for them. Interesting. And I imagine that your prior government experience and your prior government clout plays some role in, in, the DOD and these other government organizations entrusting you guys with, with, with this type of contract? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, in the U S I'm definitely the primary interface in having those conversations. What in the previous administration with what was the office of science and technology policy, OSTP, which has devolved into what is now uh, factions of the national space council, the DOD, the intelligence community, uh, NASA, and others like Department of Homeland Security that's looking at connectivity of aircraft um, to FAA and so many more. So yeah, it's, it's really, I'm, I'm, I've been cautious of, of doing work directly with the government, but as a stepping stone, we've been doing a lot of work with the government labs, and uh, that's been uh, unexpectedly very exciting and, and moving quickly, and, and DOD is very happy to see that, and so we're trying to do more and more of that. So are you guys playing some sort of role in facilitating the transition from the space organization within the Air Force to this new space yeah. entity? Yes. Yes. Uh, it's a little bit complicated. Um, <laughs> I will just keep it short and say I think it's okay to help the American public uh, acknowledge um, the need for um, investing in the infrastructure in space, but I think it's also important that we don't ignore the existing assets and and support that exists to operate that. Um, so there's a lot more, and I think the public just needs to know how much of it already exists and how we just it really is just a branding exercise, which is what this administration does very well. Cool, cool, cool. Um, transitioning to a similar topic about branding in space. Uh, so with your 
with the creativity in your household that you described. I'm really curious to hear what you think about the we go to the moon for art bit that we saw from SpaceX the past, what was it, like 10 days ago, I think? Yeah. You mean the first uh, passenger to bring a lot of artists with him? Mm-hmm. Particularly how they're kind of like branding it and trying to make it an appeal to a wider audience than just a bunch of space cadets like us. I love it. I really love it. I, I, I think it's, um, it's definitely rubbed some people the wrong way to say you can't ignore the people like the engineers. Don't you want someone with you that understands the technicians like to keep you alive during this experience? But I think the talent of design is underappreciated when it comes to such an engineering domain like this, and we need more of it, whether it's in mobility for urban aerial mobility, like Uber flying taxis, or whether it's uh, bringing um, um, supersonics back um, or uh, for passenger travel, or if it's things like this, like going to the moon, I, I do think design is a critical component of shaping the user experience and and I love the idea that they're that they're doing this. Yeah. Are, are you seeing any other initiatives to kind of raise public awareness for the the power and the beauty and the straight up awesomeness that is space and the space industry beyond the the private passenger from SpaceX? Wasn't there a company that was trying to send people's remains to the moon before like a Native American tribe got them to stop? I recently saw Neil deGrasse Tyson talk where he said, if you're so big on going to Mars and the moon and let's see you all get excited about going to Antarctica first. And I, I really like that. I think I want to see people stop fantasizing because it, it, it tends to open up um, a world of other conversations. And I, I like to, I think this industry has had this tough balance of the dreamers and the, and the, the weirdos in some sense to, the engineers and those that are just believers and are working hard to make it happen. Um, and I'm not trying to say one is worse. I just think we could do a lot more to fill that gap in between. Um, and, and that's what I'm hoping is happening over the next decade. So I, I would like to see more of that, uh, a collaboration and, and helping, helping the people that don't understand the complexities of what it takes to get to the moon, um, understand better. And that's tough. That's, that's my day to day job is, helping the people in Silicon Valley understand why the programs operate the way that they do, why integrity of data and cyber matters, why um, so many other things uh, exist the way that they do and behaving as that sandbox to allow these polarized cultures to come together um, is important for them to just peel it back a few more layers and understand a little bit more about what it takes for us to get there. And I'd love to see, the public policy, uh, I'd like, I'd like, I think National Space Council is trying to get more people more involved and familiar with building an infrastructure in microgravity environments and uh, helping uh, think about what happens after the retirement of the International Space Station. And, and I do think there needs to be a commercial pull as well as a, a, a sort of a, isn't this nice to do? So the economics have to be there just as much and, and fueling the competitive nature of industry to help us get there is just as valuable. Cool. So speaking of economics, um, one other thing that I'm dying to ask you, I know I keep saying last question uh, on, on these topics, but just because you mentioned the economics needing to be viable, I have recently become very interested in the, the, the open source 
technology and patent libraries from NASA, as well as a bunch of the other open source platforms out there. Like Google has TensorFlow for, for machine learning, for instance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, as well as I, I, in one of the talks that I was listening to from you, you were talking about how university researchers have a pretty difficult time scaling their tech to industry. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if maybe you can talk about this, this phenomenon of there being kind of an abundance of new technology out there, just kind of waiting for entrepreneurs or larger corporations to take advantage of. Um, maybe some of the, un, the, the sources of that technology that one wouldn't necessarily think of, um, and also how you know, entrepreneurs can start identifying these opportunities in, in terms of the technology that's out there. Excellent. I love this. This is so crucial. Um, yes. Uh, it's interesting. Even NASA's uh, open portfolio, they don't release the really valuable stuff, right? They still have to find a way to license the expensive stuff to like other intergovernmental departments, like FAA licensing for other things. And so, um, I mean, the patent game is a tough one. Um, government has a lot of different vehicles for helping get those licenses out. Uh, I've seen university labs, uh, set up entrepreneurs and residents in the tech transfer office to incubate those technologies into businesses. I've seen uh, investors negotiate exclusive rights to the technologies in some of the labs to say, we will then parachute our own entrepreneurs into those and build companies out of them. The NSF does something called the i program where there's a team in DC called FedTech, FedTech that, um, puts people behind some of these technologies and again, uh, tries to uh, seed seed them and incubate them uh, to a point where they become viable companies. Other accelerators like Techstars and Mass Challenge are trying to pressure cook to see how real is the team behind this to take this technology to the marketplace. Um, all that is all said and nice and done, but and even NASA's released something called the Tipping Point uh, Procurement and DOD is doing a lot of that. DHS is putting dedicated funding. They're trying to ignore the complexities of doing procurement and saying, here's clear money behind that. You've had the state of New York just released a competition for drone technology. They're putting millions into that to say, as long as you set up shop in New York for a year, we'll award you millions in near Syracuse for you to test fly your things up here. So, uh, state economic development authorities, federal SBIR, STTR, um, agency grants, uh, tipping point contracts, uh, NSF, iLab, sorry, iCore programs. There's so many different tools to help um, savvy people like yourself exploit and, and grab those technologies and run into the marketplace with them. But sometimes they may not be the best investment case for venture. And sometimes you have to look at uh, what mission you're trying to solve and and what are other ways to capitalize on the economics of that so often uh in the finance in the financial side of it we, we joke that getting venture capital funding is the worst place to go because they're trying to stretch the rubber band so far as possible before it rips um to then let it go and see how far up it can go and that is the risk mentality and profile of of the people behind venture capital investments and the rigor that goes into micromanaging your financials in that rubber band stretching 
pre-revenue model is is really painful. And, and I'm not saying you should walk away from it, but it's tough for a lot of those investors to justify some of the technologies and the investments that you're talking about as a good match. So you're going to hear a lot of no's um, versus trying to find a lot of other ways to capitalize on like what uh, empirical systems, Aero, aeronautics has done, ES Aero in San Luis Obispo has uh, been working on SVIR and, and type and, and their own independent revenue sales contracting to scale up their operation. There's so many other uh, uh, economic or, or uh, raising capital. Some startups have, uh, Sky and Space Global and Israeli satellite constellation um, went public. It's called a reverse IPO in the Australian stock exchange to raise capital um, and build up their funding. It's like another way of doing like an initial coin offering or something. Uh, there's so many creative alternative ways for people to go and raise that capital. And and then they since then like did a flip into the UK because they got funding from uh, the government there to help uh, do the local economic development there. But I, I just there's so many other ways to go out and raise money um, that you should be thinking about. And patents and IP is something else. And some of these companies aren't in it for IP. Uh, Bird, the fastest unicorn in history, is is it's a race to the finish. So. Uh, launch uh, today, everyone's saying, oh, I don't want to hear about a new launch company. And I think people that say that don't get it. Um, and maybe they may not justify a venture investment, but technically there's still a lot of opportunity for the right team to come together and target a specific niche. Uh, and, and I support it. And I think I'm not a big fan of all these concepts that are raising millions of dollars from Silicon Valley type investors who like fantasy ideas. And so, um, if you find intellectual property or if you find a good team that is going after a certain market, uh, know that there are many other ways to secure capital to seed fund and scale your business and continue to build on that uh, for the right reason if the economics make sense. Cool. So that is that's that's a, that answer makes me so happy. I had so much great content in there that I'm going to go back and, and listen to and reparse. Cool. So, man, thank you so much for coming on today and for having this conversation. There's some really fantastic nuggets about different resources to go utilize and the abundance of opportunity and alternative career paths in here that I'm really excited to dive a little bit deeper into after, uh, after we get off. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. And let's do more of it. 100%. Thank you so much, man. Well, folks, thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest insights, intel, and new content, then head on over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. That's nextfrontier, one word, dot org forward slash subscribe.